I'd just like you to have a little look around the room and see if you can see what I can see. Uh, a likely lot. <laughs> We're not like them, are we? Those people, the people on the inside, and there's people like us on the outside. We're the people who don't commit crimes. Those other people do commit crimes. But are we really that different to them? What if you imagine for a moment that you came from a family that was very different to the one you're in? Maybe you're a third generation welfare recipient, fallen on hard times. Maybe you've got psychological problems. Things just haven't gone life the way you thought they might go. And a friend of mine once said, there are three meals between civilization and anarchy. <laughs> and what does that mean for us in society? What are we going to do to suppress crime? None of us want to have crime, but every time, every action we take to solve crime, to prevent crime, has a cost of some sort. What does it mean to us? And when the crime does occur, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to find the people who did it? And what are we going to do about them? And how do we reintegrate them back into, into our society? And how do we prevent them from re-offending in the future? And you don't have to be a person on the down and out to commit a crime. Just look at the newspapers now. And you can see the sort of characters appearing in front of crime commissions, uh, big ticket crime, people who pocket large sums of cash, thank you very much. They didn't knock somebody over here with a bottle. They just went into the company accounts or whatever, or the public purse, and they pinched the money. So are we really that different to those other people? So to help us explore these questions, I, we have assembled down here in the witness box <laughs> a, a top flight group of experts, and each will bring their own different perspective on it. So on my left here, I have Professor Jeff Louis, and he is from the ANU, and Fiona Wilkes, who is, a, they're both neuroscientists. Now Fiona is doing a medical degree, and she didn't think that was challenging enough, so she's doing a PhD at the same time. <laughs> now uh, both Fiona and Jeff will bring in this neuroscience angle, and what's going on inside our brain when we commit a crime? Is there some... Is there such a thing as a criminal brain? What prevents us from, from committing a crime? Now, on my right here, I have uh, Bruce McCabe, who is a science fiction uh, techno-thriller writer, actually. And Bruce will be selling his books in the foyer outside the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, re I recommend his book. It's, uh, it's a cracking good read. And it's set in the not-too-distant future. And I'll get him to describe in a moment exactly the scenario behind his story and why it's relevant today. Because it paints a story of what society looks like, what technology does to us as we try to tackle crime. And on my far right, I have Professor James Robertson, who is former head of forensics at the Australian Federal Police and an Order of Australia recipient. And James was in charge during the post handling of the tsunami in the Indian Ocean. So he's seen a lot of things up close and I think a very personal view of what crime really means and how we solve those crimes. So I'm going to throw to Bruce first because Bruce has kind of 
painted a story in his book called Skin Job. Don't forget to buy it in the foyer. And he will sign it for you. Good plug, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy with the value I'm getting out of this sofa. <laughs> and what I'd like to do is, uh, is to get Bruce for you to describe the sort of world that exists in Skin Job. What, what's it like? People committing crime, what sort of crimes? And how are those crimes solved? How are they prevented? What's the world like in Skin Job? Mm, okay, so very, very briefly, um, I've just spent the last sort of 20 to 30 years in technology innovation, so my background is in science innovation. And Skin Job was a labour of love where I wanted to explore the effect on not only criminals but on the policemen themselves and police women of what this near future might look like based on the technologies that I had been seeing in labs that aren't here yet, but they're coming. Um, so it's a world in which uh, police actually have polygraphs. Oh, there we go. They turn out the lights. Um, have polygraphs, lie detection, uh, uh, multimodal lie detectors that are based on different biometric factors such as iris dilation and face flush and this sort of thing. And they have handheld devices in the street. Um, these things exist today in laboratory form. They're not particularly good. Uh, they top the wish list of many US police departments, uh, portable uh, polygraphs. Uh, they're the sorts of things that uh, the police really want in situations like the Boston bombings, where there's enormous time pressure to triage a whole lot of people rapidly to stop a bomber before another bomb goes off. So uh, it's a world in which that sort of device is actually sitting next to the handcuffs and pepper spray for specialist officers. A world, obviously, where surveillance goes further than we already know, uh, with more rapid face uh, recognition, with police forces using cloud computing resources uh, from companies like the Googles and Amazons of the world, requisitioning on demand the compute power they need, because compute power is going to be perhaps the uh, enabling or limiting tool in police work uh, in the future. Uh, it's um, uh, a world in which uh, surveillance goes into the audio uh, very much more than just uh, the visual in public places. And one in which citizens, and I really strongly believe this is a part of where we're going, citizen surveillance and citizen participation in policing becomes far more integrated with the phones we carry and these CCTV systems that are in our shops and stores. Because at the moment, if you remember the Boston bombings <clears throat> and all these scenarios, what's the first thing that happens? Everyone collects the hard drives and they ask people to give them their phones and we want to find those video clips, you were there, can we just assemble those? And then they go through them and it takes weeks. But I think most of that will be connected, or it's only an app away from someone being able to submit the video live or near, nearly uh, live uh, in real time. So very much citizen policing, we part of that picture as well. So that's probably in a, in a very brief nutshell. Yeah. So I'm just wondering how you feel about the idea that you're at a crime scene, maybe there's a Boston bombing or something like that, and the policemen are wandering around the place, and they're going to hold a device in front of you, and they're going to say, this is a portable lie detector. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you feel comfortable about it, or is, is it something that you would like? But maybe you're on the other end of this. Maybe you are the victim of the crime. And so it's not just about whether you're the perpetrator, but to what length are you going to go to, uh, to have the, the people who are guilty found and brought to justice? I think I might throw on that one to our neuroscientist here and say, now Bruce has brought up the idea of a lie detector, right? Is the concept even viable? I mean, in the movies, it's great because, you know, you point this thing at the person and, 
Oh, you're telling the truth. Oh, you're lying. No, no, you're telling the truth. Does it actually make sense from a neuroscience perspective to have a lie detector? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. The, there's been a fair bit of research. It's not directly uh, our research area, but there's been using a modality mainly called functional magnetic resonance imaging. They've been trying to look at the function and changes in the brain in a similar method to those that have been used in the past, like positron emission tomography. And these basically look at changes in the metabolism of the brain, trying to work out whether certain parts of the brain are activated or deactivated, and whether that gives you signals or patterns that may help you tell what people are thinking. And the short and long of it is at the moment these techniques are still being studied and developed. And it's actually an enormously complex system. It's something that Rod and I have spoken about before, that the brain and human, human beings are immensely complex. And trying to work out whether something is uh, an activation in one area or deactivation in another area or dampening of part of a circuit, that makes it really hard to figure out at a, at a realistic level what the significance of a particular finding is. And most of the studies to date have tried to match things on fairly simple models of, of deception. So someone, someone is, uh, for example, some studies that we were reading in the, in the review article from Nature were that, that someone has a card and they picked a card and they're supposed to lie about whether they have that particular card. And of course, this is a variant of things that people do, but it's, it's certainly not the, necessarily the types of situations uh, that, um, that uh, you might be looking for. In, 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 and, but this is not, think, not to take anything away from, from uh, thinking about the future with science fiction. Uh, or, uh, uh, that, but certainly that's not something we it's, can do it's currently. Certainly, it's certainly a great plot device, isn't it? Yeah. But, but there is no, I think what you're saying is there is no little switch, no little spot in the brain you can go, that's a lie indicator. <laughs> These are all indirect measures, are they not? They're based on the idea that to tell a lie, it's something that's much harder for you to do than to tell the truth. So you're putting this conscious control into going, nope, I am going to consciously lie about this now. And there are bits in the brain that do light up when that happens. And there's a lot of, I think, excitement at the moment about the fact that we can use these to tell when someone's lying. But of course, there are also a lot of times when it's not, you may not necessarily have those bits light up when you're lying. For example, psychopaths, where there's just much less of that emotional connection, may not have those changes. Or if you're telling a lie because the truth is so abhorrent to you, it might actually be less effortful to tell that lie. And we can't tell that difference with the brain scans at the moment. The other scary thing about them is while there's an awful lot of excitement around these, yes, we can tell when people are lying, and yes, that can actually be quite sensitive to tell when people are lying. It's really, really... We, we talk about sensitivity or specificity, and it's not specific. So we can say someone's lying, but if a lot of people are telling the truth, it can also say that people are lying <coughs> and know they're telling the truth, and we haven't yet got the technology to a point 
where you're not, if you're using this technology in law enforcement, where you won't be putting people in prison for no reason other than profiling, really, and thinking that they're lying, and then the computer will tell you that they're lying, but they may not be. Yeah, it's a false positive problem. Mm. So you, 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 might, you might pick up the two people that really are lying, but you might pick up out of 100 people, 67 other people, and you say they're lying, but they're not, but you've locked them up as well, and you might have sent them off to to tighten to to go to uh, to the uh, penal colony. <laughs> but this is this is where it gets fascinating because what we've got is a highly imperfect set of technologies. And the trials of the PCAS device that was trialled in Afghanistan and Iraq, this little handheld thing, you know, do you know about the roadside bomb? Uh, had about 63% accuracy, sometimes 67%, different conditions, a bit higher which is not good enough when the guy asking the questions is holding M16. <laughs> so you don't want to be dealing in absolutes and saying you're guilty on the basis of this because you might get shot for the wrong reason or sent, sent off. However, we're living in a world in which the police are being asked to protect us from people that are prepared to commit suicide to kill us. The punishment is not a deterrent. They're being asked to use more and more imperfect measures, you know, even if uh, not specific. They're not being asked to put it in a court of law. They're being asked to help to protect us before the next incident occurs, which is where I think it's interesting. It's blurring and where people get desperate and they say, the imperfect is better than nothing. Yep. Yeah. I would like to ask uh, James now whether, what, what would be the police attitude to this kind of technology? And let's say, for example, I put a lie detector application on my phone here. Uh, James, can you answer how will you feel about that sort of thing? And speaking of the phone, please, because we're going to be <coughs> testing you. Well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not a police person, so my views of what the police think are not may not be accurate. But one of the big challenges that, that we always faced in forensic science um, was that the police have got a huge appetite for unproven technology. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we had a conference even at ANU about three, four years ago where I sat and listened to an investigator actually say that they would actually listen to a clairvoyant. <laughs> yeah. Seriously would put some value on a clairvoyant. When I questioned that, and said, well, you shouldn't discount anything. That was their answer. You shouldn't discount anything. So I, I prefer to... And, you know, we've had issues in forensic with so-called pseudoscience and so on. Mm. I prefer to deal with the real world of science. And, you know, the sort of things that, that uh, Bruce is saying are are pretty scary, but they're not 10 years away. You know, they're actually here today because if you go and look at the paper, what's the debate that's taking place at the present time? You know, should IT providers, ICT providers, have to hold on to your data, you know, for the next couple of years so that someone can go in when they've got the toolkit and interrogate that and find out if you've just been sending some naughty stuff over the internet. He's <laughs> <laughs> looking a wee bit embarrassed. <laughs> and who of us in the room perhaps is 100% would be very happy to just provide every piece of data you have and let someone trawl through it with assurances that no, don't worry we won't actually hold it against you Rolf Harris. <laughs> Not if we find something there. So I think these, this, the, the whole issue of balancing what you're willing to put up with in terms of invasions of your personal privacy against protecting, if you like, broader society is, is a real live issue. Mm -hmm.
Yes, and in fact, we're going to be asking you to contribute questions. Don't feel you have to wait for me to invite you. Put your hand up at any time. I'm going to ask James another question first, though, and that is things like DNA evidence have the the, the, the aura of being correct, right? So it, the DNA marker says that there is a one in there's a 99.9 percent chance that your DNA is uh, well, you know the, the accuracy of this test gives the illusion that it's going to be correct. But how do you interpret that? And here we've got a situation with a lie detector. If that stuff is presented in court, what's what's the the witnesses? What are the um, jurors going to make of this? Are they how do they interpret something that's really quite a subtle thing? And, and, and James and Fiona described some of the challenges with lie detectors. How, how do you see that challenge, James? Well, there's actually been quite a lot of recent research about how bad we are at actually communicating signs to jurors yeah. in those sorts of situations and how much they understand and don't understand. Yeah. But if you come back to that sort of DNA question, um, you know, the reality is technically it's extremely accurate. Wherever you get humans involved in anything, there's always the potential for a human error. But we have systems in place that try to mitigate that you know, and make sure that that never leaves a lab. I would never say that it never leaves a lab, but that's what the system tries to stop. Um, the problem is, is, is if you're looking at, for example, crime prevention, uh, well, it would be very, very helpful if all of you would donate your DNA, please. <laughs> because we don't have a national DNA database that has everybody on it. Well, why is that so? I mean, you, apart from the expense of doing it, is it because people fundamentally don't trust having their personal information available to law enforcement? The police won't allow their DNA samples to go on databases. So why should you trust yourself being on that system? But the reality is, if we did, we've got field DNA testing now genuinely emerging that if you were at a crime scene, and you have a sample that you can identify as potentially really significant in context of the crime that's allegedly been committed, you can get a result in a couple of hours. You can then go off, you know, search a database, but it's only going to work if the person's on the database. Yes, it's all very tempting. Um, now, I have a, a prize here. It's going to go to one of you lucky people in the audience, and it's going to be for the best testimony that you give us. Uh, so keep your eye on this bottle. Uh, because it'll become important later on. And uh, let's see how good you are as witnesses. So now, feel free to, one of you want to throw up a question. To, bear in mind our expert panel here. And uh, if you want to throw us a question, go right ahead. Um, the area of neurolinguistics has been around for a little while. What are your thoughts on bit veracity compared with all the analysis and work that you've done? Neurolinguistics is actually a development that grew out of uh, Ericksonian uh, psychology, and it's a, it, it is it's it's somewhat at angles to, to sort of aspects of modern neuroscience. There are some correlations with modern neuroscience, but it's an area that more developed out of a psychotherapeutic approach from uh, from a, a psychological and psychotherapy principles. I'm certainly not an expert on neurolinguistic programming, but it's 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 an area that we don't currently investigate uh, at, at the moment. In terms of specifics, the field of neurolinguistics separately, where there are people like Stanislaw de Haine who've been looking at the neural underpinnings of linguistics and how we interpret language, and he, he's an outstanding researcher who's 
identified various uh, networks in the brain that allow us to interpret language and how, how, we, how we interpret letters when we're reading, how we understand language from each other, how we understand language in difficult environments when other people are, t- are talking uh, in a crowd. Uh, but as to the NLP, if that's what you're referring to, uh, uh, I, I, I can't claim expertise on that. It's not something that we, we study mainstream in our area of neuroscience. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that's what we do. Another question. Um, what about the effect of someone telling you that you're being recorded by a lie detector to compel you not to lie? Yeah. How effective would that be? It's almost like it's almost like a philosophical problem. It's a, <laughs> almost like that. Is it, is it the? Uh, that, that philosophy question. I always get the wrong philosopher. I did this with the students the other day. <laughs> the wrong philosopher. Is it? Should you tell? Are there circumstances? Is it categorical imperative? Is it can't that you're supposed to tell the truth all the time, and then the murderer comes into the house and you you, you have to tell the truth, so you, they find the person and they kill them. But the thing is that that it the the, the difficulty is that what per, the person interprets as a lie and what they think is the, is the truth can be quite different things to different people. I know that this sounds like a very sort of facile, sort of silly answer, but it is the truth. We all have a different way of experiencing the world. That's why we're all sort of individuals and we still interact with other people, but we have different personalities. And that's what, similar to what, what Fiona had mentioned in that some people may be extraordinarily good at lying because, in fact, they have no compunctions. They, in a sense, believe their lies. And this is what some of the that wouldn't research... be politicians, would it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't presume to go there. But, uh, uh, what a- 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 Adrian Rain, who's uh, written a book called *The Anatomy of Violence*, showed was that people who have these traits where they disregard social norms, they have callousness, what we call terms psychopathy. These people actually had better control of some aspects of their emotions, so that they could actually lie very convincingly. Uh, whether innately or, or whether uh, through ex- ex- exerting better cognitive control, they actually had higher measures of the, the, the ones that hadn't been caught, and there's a distinction between those who get caught in, and, and go into prison according to his research. The ones that hadn't been caught had higher levels of executive function than normal people. They were actually better at hiding in amongst us. And uh, what, you know, the only thing is that they hide, they hide in every profession. Yes, uh, since we're talking about um, psychopaths, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about what, what motivates a person to commit a crime in the first place. I mean, because all of us, we have our own wants, and yet there's something that prevents me from going and rifling through all your pockets. Actually, you should check before you leave the, uh, today. But uh, in a, from a fiction point of view, now Bruce's book, Skin Job, uh, has lots of characters doing things. Uh, some committing crimes, some are wanting to commit crimes. Bruce, how did the, the sense of human motivation drive your character? Do you have a real sense of this person? Like you've got a, you've got a religious sect in there, for example. Uh, what what was your thinking in the, motivating the characters in there? Well, almost everything in in my writing and most I think writers that I've met, uh, they draw on the the. Uh, perennial truths in what we are and who we are. I mean, the motives that I've set in a book, which is just 10 years from now, are the same motives that people display today. So I'm having fun with religions that are, are, are hopelessly uh, interested in money 
and taking as much of the wall as they can out of their uh, out of their flock. Um, having fun with police who are interested in um, convictions and not necessarily justice, but getting a result and getting something happening. I'm interested in criminals with the normal motives that they have today. Um, so that's sort of what 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 uh, what drove. So I think the story I think what we're them. saying is that, that people really don't change that much. Well, the actually, technology changes. Social norms change. Social society um, and, changes. And, um, to, to a point that Jim made a, a second ago, you know, uh, about DNA and they're keeping this next two years worth of data in the telecommunications companies. You remember the debate, some of you will be old enough to remember the Australia card when it came on the scene? You know, people marched in the street against the Australia card. It was an election issue. It was a key issue in Australian society. And that was the idea that we might have one card for all our government services, you know, Medicare and everything combined on one card. Oh, my God. You know, we marched in the streets over that. It was an election issue, you know. Now, we're like, why is it on one card? It's not convenient. I mean, for God's sake, I'm going to carry three of them. There's a social norm which has been reset. And even this debate about the telcos having to keep our data for two years, it's inevitable that they'll be asked to keep more and more of it, and then they'll be able to make it live on demand for the last two years of the police service. Why? Because our norms are being redefined by our insecurity about terrorism and other threats to us. As people, we're prepared to give up so much more than we were just a few years ago in terms of our personal day. It just shifts. It's like a continuous shift. So I constantly look at that as well. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm just back from a, an overseas holiday, which uh, I won't share with you, but it was terrific. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the experiences I had in it was I visited the former East Germany, mm -hmm. and our tour guide, Andreas, was a lovely guy, and he was describing what life was like in East Germany under the communists and it kind of resonates in this conversation we're having this afternoon because it wasn't nice, he said it just was not a nice place to live, you couldn't trust your neighbour because they would be spying on you and dobbing you in and so on and you know, I just wonder is that the next step beyond intrusive invasion into your personal space that we produce a society where well I don't trust you and I'm going to sort of tell the police maybe they should be looking at you and whatever else. That's happening now. I mean, look at the Crime Stoppers lines. They're filled well, with people calling their yeah. neighbours because they had a pipe yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah. And, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, and you've answered your question. Is that you're talking about criminals as if they're a sort of separate class of human beings. <laughs> I mean, who are most of the people who are so-called criminals? They're folk out committing burglaries, you know, trashing your car or whatever else. And I'm not saying that some of them are, if you want to call it, genuine criminals. Mostly their motivation is either just disrespect for other people's property or drugs. I need money to pay for my drugs. Drugs. And are we, you know, do we criminalise people or are they actually criminals? So what, what is this preventing most of us normal law-abiding us that is... That we're not, we're not like Mr Rand's daughter and we don't um, stumble in to taking drugs and getting hooked on them and then taking over our entire lives and our conscious thought processes so that we don't actually make radical, logical choices. Mm -hmm. uh, so drugs, yeah. I, I have a theory that uh, intelligence is more about justifying our emotions than it is for solving problems. In fact, one of the fundamental problems we have to solve as humans is, why do I feel this way? You have intelligence to do that. So what are the main inhibitors in... Is, is there a really strong sense in, in our brains? Is there something we can measure that, that, that prevents us from getting up and doing something inappropriate? I mean, we have an impulse to do something, but we don't for some reason. I think it is an awful lot uh, about social norms. Uh, 
But from an evolutionary perspective, there's an idea that you're, the brains have evolved the way they have to be social and to be successful in the big groups that we are and so that as humans we're successful. You have to have this group cohesiveness and then you need to set norms and there needs to be some circuitry with bits in your brain which make you then adhere to these norms. And there are some theories about the development of your, other than people who are committing crimes because of drug addictions, but those the kind of career crimes that they used to think of in that they don't develop so many of these social norm pathways that we have in the brain. And so the brain is really just not responsive to learning the way that you and I learn in that you, what's acceptable, what's not. They don't... We learn that primarily sometimes by fear of what the rest of society will think. And so it's a lot of this fear conditioning. I know I can't do that because that's bad because that's outside of the social norms and that will get me ostracised from the group. <laughs> but there are people who just, from very, very young ages, don't learn that way. And if you don't have that stop in you, then why should you stop from doing, some, from doing something to get you what you want? So would you say that uh, we each learn from an early age, like we build up a mental model of how the world operates. So there's a bunch of rules that says that if I behave this way, if I do this, that will happen. So there's a group of people who go down a criminal pathway who learn from their parents, from the environment, <coughs> that if they commit a crime or whatever, it gets them sort of satisfaction. Well, it's, 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 uh, I think the thing is that as Fiona there is an evolutionary perspective, but there's also a social cultural perspective in that the way that society deals with people can sometimes influence how, whether people fear the punishment as well. So it's a mix, it's a combination of both factors relating to people and their brain development, their, their upbringing, uh, the social norms. So it's an interaction, it's, ne it's never just inside the, the brain, it's also within the, the family and society and and, and people who have been traumatised can respond in certain sorts of ways as well. And there are some people we think that are, are, have neurodevelopmental changes. They are different. And this... And this young gentleman may be one of them. <laughs> He's turned out, he worked out how to turn on the light and all of us couldn't do it. <laughs> so, um, so it's, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's this... It's this interactive effect, but some people may actually have, and they and they, it's difficult because a lot of evolutionary explanations sound like reasoning after the fact, what we call in science post hoc or teleological in a way. There are some that there have always been some people that are in society that have been predatory, and these are the people that we regard as the psychopaths, and they can be quite good at simulating. The, like the rest of us, so so the, the brightest ones are hardly detectable, and they just exploit people in ways that they can't really get caught for. The, the less bright ones are the ones who may end up in, in jail, incarcerated, because they tend to have much less control of their impulses, but still have the same disregard for other people's property or, or livelihood, and they end up being incarcerated. But uh, so there are 
in, in probably in the human population, sort of one or two percent of people who, who are more predisposed to potentially taking advantage of us. Unfortunately, none, none, none here today. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have a, we have a question from none that you know about. Anyway. <laughs> um, I looked at programs on TV where people go into sex and be sort of become different people going into these environments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm. My mother's, you know, good and bad, and I know right and wrong. But could I be taken by some people or something or other yeah. and um, be trained to, at my age, <laughs> go off and kill somebody or do something bad or something? Is, is, yeah. is it's for me who, at the moment, I mean, I don't want to do it. <laughs> 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 I hear you. You're, you're, you're not. Just you're definitely not that. volunteering for that project. <laughs> there, there has been some studies that were related to work by Robert J. Lifton, who was a, a psychiatrist who worked around the Vietnam War and the Korean War period, about people who'd been brain, brainwashed, people who'd been interrogated and imprisoned and essentially subjected. So people who are subjected to quite severe types of trauma, some of the things that relate to things that relate to advanced interrogation techniques that are described where you deprive people of sleep, where you put them in positions that are uncomfortable. Some of these things occur in these, some, the sex. They also cause people to be taken away from their loved ones and their influences. And under these sorts of situations of deprivation, people can lose some of their controls and inhibitions and then adopt the norms of, of the group. And this has been known for a long time. And historically, it's been described with Patty Hearst from a period of time, quite some time ago, I'm realising that's quite a long time ago, when, when, when she, she was an heiress who was, kid, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Front, and she was actually charged and jailed uh, for, for committing some robbery subsequently, but she had been kidnapped, and uh, this is a variant of something that was called the, the, the related to the Stockholm Syndrome, where sometimes people also take on the norms of their captors. So it's a real phenomenon, and that, that is part of what's related to cults and sex. It's part of what, how they do that. And there had been concern expressed about some personal development programs that are similar to that as well, but I won't go there. <laughs> um, no, no, there's another question. We'll hold that for the moment. Um, I just want to ask you whether you've had this experience where you're swapping a story with somebody and you're going, no, no, that didn't happen. Like, I, my sister and I, we were little toe rags, right, when we were kids. I won't tell you the story now, but I can remember getting together with her years ago, like 20 years after, they went going, oh, we did this and we did that, and she says, no, we didn't. No, no, no that was... Com and our versions of the story were completely different, right? So, now, imagine you are in court, and there's a line-up, and you've got to say who's guilty, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to... How... Well, how well do you trust your memory of an event? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was right cycling home from work, and in front of me is a grey falcon, right? And from my right comes another car, Wampa, T-bones him, right in front of me. Uh, I can remember this guy's name. I don't remember his name. He was driving a grey falcon. I've forgotten what he was driving. And yet, theoretically, I could be hauled up uh, as a witness to testify this. So let's just see how good you all are as witnesses. And uh, there's a little prize for you. And uh, 
Now, normally we get the gorilla in for this uh, episode, but he's too busy doing his world tour. And so we have Katie here now. So Katie, uh, Katie's uh, got a little surprise for us. And uh, bad, don't get her, don't get her um, riled because she's, she's in a pretty bad mood. <laughs> Uh, yes, and uh, Katie, by the way, is also a fantasy novelist, but you can't get a book today. And by the way, Katie... <laughs> right, now, who can remember what just happened? 30 seconds ago, that was... Um, Katie stood up, got two poppers, standing in past to drink over and went... <laughs> Oh, that's been hard to argue with. <laughs> I was trying to nudge Fiona and say, come on, supposed to, where is the bottle of wine gone? Because that's your prize. It's in the bag. <laughs> All right, that's... <laughs> um, by the way, I, I, I did have a much bigger party popper. It was the size of a small hand grenade and I was a bit worried. <laughs> We're going to blow the walls off this room. It was not a good look, so let's not do that. Um, so where's the bottle of wine? It's in the bag on the ground. Um, it's like one of those kids shows where they, where they have to keep pointing. And then <laughs> 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 There's a couple of interesting things going on here because you saw what happened down the front here, right? And I'm nudging Fiona. Uh, some of us are probably more likely to be fingered as guilty, right? So if this were a lineup and you didn't have the privilege of having seen us just now, would we be more likely to choose, say, James? He's a he's a likely lad. Yeah. Uh, or he's Bruce. Scottish. He's probably drinking. And so remember, we talk about intelligence, and, and I think we have to use the term post post fact or whatever it is. Post uh, um, that after the fact you apply your intelligence to fill in the gaps of what, and then you justify your decision. Mm. So Bruce here is definitely a bad guy. Must have been him. But will the real uh, perpetrator please stand up and present the prize to our person in the audience? Mm -hmm. uh. Fiona, thank you. Thank I think you. I, I think I'll get I'll, it later. up the back. <laughs> get it later. Thank you. If we don't finish it <laughs> and, and then another way you can improve the experiment for, for next year, not, so this audience is disqualified, you can make them count how many pops and do more pops. That's how, that's how the gorilla experiment was, was done, they got them to do that. Uh, because they're concentrating on one factor, is that yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, a, it's, attentional, it's sort of a version of attentional blink. So, so, so how in, in the evidence, like you've been to court a few times, I think, James, you would present the evidence. You, have you seen... <laughs> what's been your perception of, of how a witness you appears? You've seen meticulously In fact, you've probably been a witness in court many times, I would... Uh, yeah. what, what, what's your perception of what you've seen in those events? You mean, are you asking me to talk about eyewitness stuff or in, as, a, as a general statement, eyewitness stuff is entirely unreliable? <laughs> unless, unless you actually know the person that you've seen, mm. that is, it really is incredibly unreliable. Mm. And there's been a lot of psychological research yep, that has you know, demonstrated that. What do you mean by know the person that you've seen? So the, the same um, eyewitness yes. knows the person they've yes, described. Exactly. Yeah. If you haven't actually seen the person before, you actually know the person, mm. then it's very, very unreliable. <coughs> and this is a problem in the United States, is that there's a very large number of people in jail 
you know, and a lot of the evidence has mm. been basically eyewitness uh, yeah. testimony that yeah. they saw the person. And then even to complicate it further, yeah. um, it depends on the ethnicity of the person yeah. because Caucasians are yeah. much better at recognising Caucasians mm. than they are recognising people of Chinese background yeah. or African background and mm. vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So a little, a little straw poll, don't answer this question, this is to you, the audience. Don't answer this if you're not comfortable, but who of you have been the victim of crime of some sort? Could be, I had my car stolen twice. Can you just have a show of hands if you, if you want to indicate? Uh, some sort of crime, it doesn't matter. It could have been, uh, uh, my house was broken into, my daughter was there. Someone uh, stole one of my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I made a bad joke. <laughs> So that's a, pretty, that's a pretty fair showing of hands, and I wouldn't mind betting some people didn't want to put their hands up in this setting, right? So, James, what would you recommend, to, and to our other experts here, what would you recommend to anybody here who experiences a crime? What, would be, what should they do other than dealing with the immediate crisis, whatever it is? What would you recommend that they do? Well, I, well I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I think the answer to your question lies there. But purely from a forensic perspective, mm. touch nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and call the police. <laughs> well, maybe we'll go back to contamination of evidence at the moment, but uh, uh, perhaps... Uh, from, a health, like from a health viewpoint, it's important, to, obviously, the first thing we teach all our health professionals as well, and it applies to the public, is take care of your own safety, make sure that you're safe and a safe location, and then... Often people have their own coping strategies, so we're not suggesting that you necessarily need to see a health professional. A lot of people talk to their friends and families when something has happened that's, that's bad, and that's part of normal coping that people do. And for most people, that's, that's fine. There, there shouldn't be any... The, the evidence is very much against forcing people to undertake counselling or debriefing. So, so, uh, but if things are persisting and you're concerned about something, the best thing is to go and, and see your GP, and the GP can make the appropriate referrals uh, or, or support you in the right sort of way. But uh, in the first instance, like anything, it's to be, it's to be safe. Then punch a wall. <laughs> make sure there's not a stud behind it. Break your wrist. We had a question. Called anger management. <laughs> Red white helps as well. <laughs> I was just curious, you touched on the uh, subject of evolution, and I'm, I'm just curious, in the last 50 years, it seems like society in general has more heinous crimes per, in the population. Is it more of, a, of uh, the sensationalism, the media yeah. getting in there, yeah. The, yeah. That, that is being identified more often now rather than there's actually more... Other than Syria and places like that and specific events, in terms of Western society, it's never been safer. There's fewer murders, fewer, fewer less general crime. It really hasn't. It's just the media likes to beat up because... Good news is no news. Yeah. You know, if you ever actually go out to like the United Arab Emirates, the newspapers are fabulous. They're full of positive good news. The paper every day tells us how wonderful you in the United Arab Emirates is and what a great job the government's doing. <laughs> <laughs> New roads and, you know, and so on and so forth. But well, that's not going to sell a paper for you know, the Murdoch Empire you know, in Australia or America or whatever. It's you know, dastardly deed. You know, and so on, crime on the rise. 
you're not safe in your home. Mm. It's the media that's beat it up, but fed by the public's desire to frankly have sensationalism. Mm. Just, just to continue on that previous question, is it like we're talking future technology help, technology to help us to solve the crime, but is it that technology also is responsible for in this crime? Like, before we might have one, someone coming with knife killing one or two people, but now we've got someone coming with automatic gun and killing in some society. Can you, can you repeat the question, sir? Yeah, the, the question is about whether technology, you know, the concept of availability mm. of guns, mm. you know, has actually increased that. Mm. Well, the reality is, again, there's no actual evidence of that. The United States apart, you know, there are more guns in Canada per head of population than there is in the United States. So why is Canada not running around shooting each other? Well, fundamentally, it's because they've got enough wildlife to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> shoot themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Americans across the border really wanting. Um, but that's not true. I mean, the reality is that violent crime, if you, again, going back to my lovely holiday that I've just been on, um, gun crime has all but disappeared from many, many countries in the world. Go to I was in Hong Kong last year. There's no gun crime in Hong Kong. You might think of Hong Kong as having lots of crime. No gun crime. No gun crime in Singapore. So there's lots of countries in the world where there's just no gun crime. But it's a bit harder to take the kitchen knife off someone. So it's still the preferred weapon for killing people, particularly your spouse, you know, because that's what most mothers are. Mm. But it's, it's more, more, more than just gun crime. It's like the stealing money from bank accounts or doing cyber some crime. cyber crimes. Now, that's, that's not changed either. Greed, human greed is alive and well and always has been. It's just how it manifests itself. And all that's happened now is, is instead of in the old days where someone would go in and have to blow up a bank in order to get the money, then followed by robbing people to pay back. Because I'm old enough to remember the days when you get a little brown envelope with your money in it and so on. That's what honest criminals used to do. <laughs> now, now you don't bother blowing up the safe or robbing the person. You just go along to the local service station and rob the till or if they're a bit more sophisticated, they try and rob the bank. And the banks and don't tell you, of course, because they don't want to tell you how much they actually lose every year. Mm. We've been following uh, ICAC, though. There's still plenty of um, cash and paper around there. <laughs> there is. <laughs> and there's still massive amount of real cash <coughs> circulating in the world. They estimate that possibly every second US dollar in the world is counterfeit. <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting, just, just before we go, just a quick comment on that though. One of the really interesting enablers right now, which is make a lot of police tear the hair out, things like Bitcoin and other things where you can't track money and it is instantaneous transactions, peer to peer. And so if I want to park cash and I'm part of a bikey gang and I want, want to park that cash anywhere else in the world, Bitcoin is almost perfect right now. So there are all sorts of little enablers and possibilities that do come out and make things hard. To show their politicians aren't even clever enough to use modern technology. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the next big technology is in terms of finger biometrics being really common in airports, fingerprints, iris scans, etc.? What's the next big technology along that line? In terms of tactical sort of uh, things, I mean, when I when I think of these uh, sort of what does the future look like, I think the data picture is, is massive. So I actually think policing... Sorry? Uh, there's two sort of... There's a few uh, trajectories that I find interesting. One is the citizen policing angle, and that means, you know, you've got all these CCTV cameras out there. You might have 
10 years from now, I don't know, we might have 10,000, 10 million, who knows, Australia, but we're never going to have nearly as many cameras as we have on our cell phones and on our cars and what we're wearing and all the others because they're proliferating and they're going to cost 10 cents each, right? So the citizen technology to help in solving, preventing, securing, it's already changing everything. Everyone's got a phone. Dolby and Ebert and these German model. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that's exactly how it's working now. The first thing people ask for is, you know, someone filmed it. The police themselves can't practice, you know, a bit of uh, back alley brutality with somebody because someone's got a cell phone right there while they're making the arrest. And you see them. Watch the episode of Cops now, a new episode. You see there's five people with cameras watching the arrest just in case the policeman crosses the line, right? So, if you think about that trajectory, we've got this huge amount of data washing around the system. It's the same in the business world. Um, you know, you think about what the banks are doing, you go talk to an insurance company. Where are they getting excited? It's the fact that there's this exponential increase in data. But you've got to process it. You've got to find ways to munge through it and pull out little gold nuggets. Now, in crime fighting and in policing and police work and even in discovering fraud, I think this data universe is massive and most of it's going to be video-based. Um, that's sort of one answer anyway. There's lots uh, of that's, that's a really good answer and it's a really good question too. And I know a friend of mine was involved with forensics for one of the telcos, right? And there were crime syndicates who used to um, run up a big debt on their mobile phone and then they'd chuck the phone and then go and get another one, right? But what they discovered was that you have a unique fingerprint of calls, a call pattern on your phone. So I'll call Bruce, <coughs> I might even call James, uh, I'll call my wife, i call my kids. But that fingerprint is unique to me. It identifies my phone regardless of what my phone number is. Mm. And so we're all leaving this trail of evidence. In fact, just like you think for a moment, you all showed up here at this event, you're all suspects of being an event called Future Cop, right? <laughs> and in, you've already left a trail of evidence to say that you are right here today, now, and you are going to leave more evidence as you leave. So I wonder maybe if our panellists want to uh, pick up on that, because if we wanted to piece together what happened here, apart from my audio recorder sitting there and the cameras going, <laughs> <laughs> You've got your phones. Last year we had someone was uh, videotaping us on their, on their mobile phone. Well, apart from all the traditional things that they've left, hairs, biological material on the chairs that we could go around and collect oh. if we're on the databases. <laughs> I actually did want to come back and comment on the question that you asked. I mean, the, the, the area that grew the largest in the time I was in charge of the AFP and has continued to grow is digital forensics. Mm. And that is, I mean, you know, putting aside all the traditional forensic things that you watch in CSI that are all rubbish, but after some truth in them, and where these things are going to advance, the challenge is data. And, but the reality is, data is only helpful and useful if you can do it in a meaningful time frame. If you go back and look at the London tube bombings as an example of that, they, because Britain is, who's been in Britain recently? You can't travel 50 metres without being on a CCTV camera yeah. in that country. Mm. It's quite invasive. Mm. But you've got to collect all that. There are no automatic systems of looking through it. So they had literally hundreds of people sitting going through those looking for mm. something. Mm. You know, we haven't got the search tools yet to search metadata. You know, that's the reality, the real reality of it. And in computer science, one of the most exciting little frontiers that no one's really talking about except the people that are specialising in is searchable video. So we can't search video at the moment. Just YouTube. You can search for the metadata around the YouTube clip. 
but you can't really search for objects within video. Can I just like, you, you, you've got to be very careful what you collect. <laughs> this is the point. That these things are intelligence, and intelligence is only intelligence if you can actually get to it quick enough. I was over in the US, and they have a program called TDAC, where in Iraq they collected every basically thing that blew up there over several years. They have a warehouse with this material sitting in it, still analysing it years after they've been out of Iraq. Yeah. What's the bloody purpose of that? <laughs> you know, what's that going to tell them? Well, we know what happened in Iraq five years ago. They turned around and told me one of the success stories because off of some explosive device piece they got some DNA. said, we know who this person is. I said, that's fantastic. Where is he? And he says, oh, we had to let him go because we didn't have that. But if we get him again, we'll know who he is. <laughs> time value. So time is the issue. You've got to be quicker, faster, and you've got to collect the right data, not just masses of rubbish. <laughs> we have some more questions up here. It's more of a comment. Um, uh, read recently, uh, Henry Kissinger said to Bob Carr, and this is a person who's you know, wired into the US intelligence community still to this day, um, I've never heard anything surprising come out of intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sadly. Oh, that's a big failure, isn't it? And and that, yeah, sorry, no, go on, go on. And it does speak to, like, if, you, if occasionally you get the commentary direct from the people in CIA programs, that, you know, Echelon and all these things. And they say, look, you think we're listening to every conversation. Of course we're not. We're recording them all, right, essentially, but we can't listen to them all. We can't find information. The issue is the mass. Okay? What's that scene in the Simpsons movie where they've got that vast warehouse of people watching the screens? And someone exclaims in the sea at the back of these screens, I've got one, I've got one. Yeah. yeah. We actually found someone we're looking for. Last <laughs> <laughs> speaking, we're still chasing the terrorists. We're not ahead of them. Yeah. No. But that's but that's the, that is the right at the beginning of this. We started down this path. But to me, that's the source of so much dramatic conflict and tension. Is a tension between the speed, the need for speed, the need to preempt, and the suicide bomber. There's no other way of dealing it. There's no deterrent. Dead. So you have to preempt. The only protection you can provide the community is to try and preempt the crime. Can, can I just say that the one that I don't absolutely agree with you there. I mean, the one thing that, frankly, the police did a lot of work in this space is, is you preempt it by stopping the radicalisation of young people That's in these communities. Um, well, I was predicting this ten years ago, and it's happening now. We haven't been successful with it, but the That's reality. Sorry, but that is preemption. Yeah, well, that's what that's we've preemption. got to do. It's the only. You can't solve it once they've got the suicide bomb on them, because oh, even if they don't blow it up, someone's sitting with a switch at the side to blow them up. I think we have another question. Someone's been patiently waiting down the front here. Um, talking about DNA, why is it that you um, bring cases back that have not been solved 20, 30 well, years ago based on new DNA? Well, that's, that's pretty simple. I'm old enough to actually remember the world before DNA, and it always existed, but before we were able to use it in a forensic context. When it first came in 30 odd years ago, you needed something the size of a 50 cent coin of blood or a big dollop of semen in order to get a DNA result. Mm. I can get a DNA result from your arm sitting on that wooden bench, so just be careful. <laughs> and the problem is, now it's not that, the problem is saying, well, when was that left, and does it actually mean anything in the context of what's alleged to have been happened? So you've got to separate the biometric stuff. Police want to know who should we be looking for as quickly as possible. The other harder part of the forensic equation is, is 
were they actually involved in anything? What actually happened, you know, there? Not just was the person there. And if any of you are interested in going and reading up probably the classic recent case of where DNA numbers were misused, read a case called JAMA, J-A-M-A, from Victoria, because it's a classic of where things can go wrong. I've got a couple of questions. One, we have a case in Canada where the forensic pathologist, um, almost over 20 years, had a certain interpretation over, over baby deaths, mm-hmm. and it affected a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You're probably aware of that. Um, you know, like how, as a person in society, I want to know that I can be protected. Yet I also don't want my rights trampled on either. So how do I draw that balance to have my own comfort level to know that you folks are... Well, I could have a cheap shot at my medical colleagues, (laughs) and I probably will, (laughs) which is that, frankly, too many doctors are not scientists, so well done to the doctor who's doing a PhD. (laughs) So, frankly, they come up with theories that are unsubstantiated by any evidence, and since... Mm-hmm. It's one of the classics, and it happened in the United Kingdom as well. Yeah. So, frankly, doctors need to get engaged in more proper research, and there was a big report into that case that said, un- unfortunately, pathologists are a very small number of people, often working and quite isolated, come up with theories, and you know, the, the classic forensic witness that stands up with lots of authority and says, this is my view, and you have to accept it. Mm-hmm. Is there any DNA proof to say that we create evil? From DNA, is there any sort of? Oh, uh, that, that is the. the are you potentiated in <laughs> brain to be evil? I think yes. Born or not sure. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, really, Born evil. <laughs> I, I'd say it's outside my expertise. It's mm. it's a complicated area because of the issue of of <coughs> genetics aren't aren't the whole destiny. It's always the interaction. We know even with the research that is shown on in genetics that people's environmental changes can also cause changes in their genetics. <coughs> the, Dutch, the Dutch hunger survivors, the famine survivors, uh, were more, the, the children of those mothers were more vulnerable to getting diabetes as a result of their mothers being starved during that period. And these were genetic changes just passed on from one generation, which is something like the Lamarckism that people didn't believe in before. So these are the changes that... And this is from a, a social and a cultural and a historical change. So it's a lot more complex than that, and uh, I think the definition of evil is not really something that we can say from a medical viewpoint. That's something for society to decide. Evil's difficult. There's been some interesting research with aggression, though, and whether or not that has a genetic basis. The things that we know about genes and aggression is that we know, I think, about 1% of aggression can be explained by genes that we know. So we do know that there are some things which people inherit which make you more likely to be aggressive. Does that completely negate all of your upbringing and all of these layers that you put on top to go, no, I won't be aggressive, I'm not going to behave like that? Of course not. But there are certain things that people look at and I was actually reading a very interesting case from Italy from a few years ago where a man had murdered another man because this man said something negative about his appearance and he just snapped and killed this guy 
and his lawyer got him a reduced sentence because it, they managed to show that he had one of these genes towards oh, yeah. increased aggression. Yeah. It's a whole different area about culpability. Yeah. And that's really not for us to determine. It's the, probably the only time you, you'll hear me use this word is that there's almost incommensurable difference between my impression, and I'm not a legal expert, of, of what what neuroscience and, and, and medical science shows and how courts and legal systems interpret information because we deal often, especially those of us who work and work with patients and families, their families, we deal with a lot of uncertainties, a lot of grey areas, we look at things in probabilities. But when, when, when courts ask us questions, they say, is it very likely probable? Is it, you know, is it this binary thing? And, and you know, I, I wonder one day, you know, will I get hauled up by, you know, by, the, by just being contempt of court by saying, I don't really know. <laughs> it's just so hard to work out because real life is like that and working with real people. And I'm sure that, that, that forensicists appreciate this too. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a difficulty with engaging with the system that is, is in a certain way and that has to be for society I guess and by the, by the way the first version of this panel was going to be called Future Crime and people said oh you're naming it after the movie well you remember the premise of Future Crime was that uh, was that another um, who's the author of um, oh, you think that minority report Pre-crime, right? So if somebody's like one of these ones, they've got a genetic predisposition to, to commit a crime, we think they may be their psychopath or they've got a, some sort of evil blend and they're going to go in only a matter of time and go and do something. Do we lock them up just in case before they actually commit the crime? That's probably a philosophical question. That's for us in society more than a science question, but certainly an interesting one to figure. We have time for one last question from the audience. I think there's a gentleman here. I had one. Um, what about the people in society that would commit a crime, but in a way that society accepts, say, the general that leads his troops in a battle with an almost unacceptable amount of casualties or civilian deaths, how do they differ to the person that steals millions of dollars from a bank or a person that walks into a house and shoots someone and steals all their money? Yeah, that's a... Are they... We need a lawyer on this panel. So, <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, in, in what a, we define as acceptable or non-acceptable is a social. That's a social mm, construct, yeah, it and is. it changes. But they still feel the guilt, and I, I suppose. Oh, it's is your question? Your question is about the neuroscience of the criminalism. Yeah, yeah, or, or even on the social standard. Um, well, there may be different. There may be differences depending on the, the so, as you said, the societal expectations, but there. There may be circumstances in which some of those behaviours are considered sort of adaptive, and it depends on the context. So, in someone, it might be considered bravery, and, and, and loss of loss of life may be acceptable. But in other circumstances, it may be. And and the, to add to the mix is that <coughs> apparently there's a guy, there's a there's a there's a psychologist called Kevin Dutton who's done some research on on, uh, on psychopathy, and he's written a book with Andy McNabb, who's a former person who worked in special forces. And he's talking about the, the good psychopath because apparently, and I've only read the blurb on, on the book, so I, I haven't read the detail of the book, so I, I do have that uh, disclaimer, that uh, Andy McNabb did the psychopath test and passed with flying colours in the <laughs> test, but he's regarded as a, a good soldier and, and, uh, and, and uh, did great service for his country. So there's a lot of complexity about those sorts of issues.
And that's, yeah. that's the difficulty with some of with these moral things, and there's been some really interesting brain imaging studies looking at the way people's brains work in moral choices. And there's this thought, really, with the moral, that on one hand, you've got the... Like the cognitive control and thinking really hard about a problem to make a moral decision. But on the other hand, you also have the automatic emotional gut response, mm. which we get. And balancing those things together is how we make moral decisions. Mm. But there are specific ways that we can look at it. There's a, a very famous moral question saying, well, look, if, if there's a, a train out of control going down this track and there's someone on the track but you can divert mm. the train however that will then kill five people you're by making a decision you're going to kill someone but who do you kill and your choice changes depending on how emotionally connected you are to whatever people you're killing so obviously it's better to kill one person than five if, if you but to have to let someone die, but it's it's a really really very complicated. Uh, unless it's your best way. Uh, fortunately, we don't have to conduct that experiment today. <laughs> um, you, you, was, you were looking for volunteers, weren't you? <laughs> um, I think uh, now it's time to, it's time to wind up, and I have heard uh, research shows, of course, it always shows. Actually, research shows that 97% of all statistics are made up. But um, <laughs> I've heard that uh, people on average come away from any event with two messages. So we do the sums, it's actually more than uh, two. I'm going to ask our, uh, each of our panellists just to uh, very, very briefly, if you've got one or even two uh, messages that you'd like to leave our audience with, uh, now's your opportunity. I haven't. Well, don't believe anything in CSI <laughs> and don't believe anything in CSI and don't recreate East Germany in your society. Yeah. And whether, mine would be whether we like it or not, the pressures being put on our people in law enforcement will force more and more compromise in the way they police. And that's going to be very uncomfortable for some of us. It's certainly, it's already extremely uncomfortable for me. I do not like surveillance or data being kept. But it is fact, you know, it's just going to be more compromised because of the pressure. So the future's going to happen with us or with yeah, it's or just, regardless? I would say that we shouldn't be using technology that we don't understand or that doesn't have a decent basis behind it. So an application of scientific principles. Good we endorse that in science. <laughs> hey, look. I agree, but it won't happen. <laughs> and I, I would recommend one book which is really interesting written by Duncan J. Watts which is called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. <laughs> and seriously, it's a terrific book. He, he, was, he was the person who worked with Stephen Strogatz to develop network theory to understand the human connectedness in networks and, and about uh, connectivity. And his book is very thought-provoking about how we examine things. And it's a distillation of a lot of things that we talked about in relation to how we interpret information after the fact and that some of it marries the cognitive science. So, and the other one that I, I confess I haven't gotten through all of it yet is The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker, which is a controversial book, but it, it does talk about some of the things that, that you were concerned about, about uh, whether humans are really more violent now than they were before. Can, right. can I recommend a couple of YouTube clips for people like that, that are just very provocative, that really make you think about this sort of compromised world? Um, just search on something called the Embedded 
avatar kiosk. Avatar, you know, like making <coughs> the embedded avatar kiosk. This is something the University of Arizona has developed. It's an experiment. It's sitting at customs between Mexico, border control, Mexico and the United States. And it does interviews. It's a machine, it's a kiosk with a face on the screen. And it does a QA with people and then decides based on thermal cameras and all the rest of it whether they need more questioning from the customers. How long are you staying in the United States? Do you intend to work? Will you be going home after your trip? There's a computer talking to you. It looks at the iris dilation, lots of stuff. Just have a look at that clip and understand as compromised as it is, they're pushing for this stuff like mad over there. They love it. You know. um, that would be one. And the other one would be some neuroscience being done by Professor Jack Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-T, at the University of California in Berkeley. Just look up his lab site. And he's using fMRI machines, like these guys have been talk- talking about, to reproduce images. So actually scan the brain and then put on a screen a representation of something that the subject is watching. So he uses software to model how we process video. We don't even understand how the brain works in this area, but he's modeling it. And then he's getting you to watch another video, putting you in the fMRI machine and recreating what you're watching on a TV screen, almost like watching your dreams, right? Just have a look at that. It's very rudimentary today, but it's the most provocative computer science I've seen in 30 years, uh, just in terms of where we might go in another 30 years. Have a look at those two things on uh, YouTube. All right, thank you, thank you, Bruce. My, uh, so my final messages to you are, uh, you've been a wonderful audience. Uh, I want to take you home. <laughs> not all at once. Um, I, I'm already thinking about uh, a panel that we might do for next week, next year's science week. Mm-hmm. And I want to hit a big topic. This one has been pretty big, I think. Uh, but this one is, can science save humanity? Now, I don't know if you heard an interesting uh, talk by Clive Hamilton recently. And here's, here's, a, here's a quick question for you. Don't try and answer it now. But if you were to add up the number of kilos of all the humans on the planet, what percentage would we make of all the uh, mass of animal life? What would be that percentage of humans? 30%. 30% is what he said. Uh, domesticated animals, farm animals, pets and so on, 67% was the number he gave. That's a staggering number. So I'm thinking that uh, that might be a subject for next year's Science Week panel. If uh, you have any ideas, come and see me and I've got to give you a card. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, thank you very much for your contributions at the, in the gold coin bucket to help keep uh, our program Fuzzy Logic on air. It's uh, quite a struggle to keep a little uh, volunteer operation going, so thank you very much. Most important, we have had a stellar panel here, and I'm really, really delighted with uh, what, what, a, what a great bunch you have been, and, and um, you've made a great contribution, and thank you very much to Professor Jeff Louie. And a big thank you to the organisers of National Science Week and Nguyen and Mary McKinnon and the crew. You do a, do a fantastic job. Good on you and catch you all next year. Thank you.